Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, OIS Podcast listeners. This is Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us. Listen, folks, we are up against the deadline for voting for OISX. The time is now. The deadline is Wednesday, October 3rd at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So you do not have much time to vote. Go to ois.net and click on the OISX Gala, and you will uh, be able to vote for uh, the finalists. We have the finalists of the Clinical Innovator Award, the Industry Innovator Award, the Clinical Rising Star Award, the Industry Rising Star Award, the Dealmakers of the Year Award, and the Game Changer Award. So please go to ois.net, click on the OISX button, and you'll be able to place those votes. And uh, it's getting close, so please uh, make sure you uh, you vote before the deadline, which again is going to be 5 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday, October 3rd. It's coming right up. Today's podcast guest is Jay Cormier. He is the CEO of Idaptic, which is a really cool augmented reality company. Jay presented at OIS Retina, as we'll uh, mention in the podcast. And uh, it's really, uh, it's a neat, a neat application of some very innovative technology. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation. You can also find Jay's presentation on our OIS YouTube channel. So please uh, find that as well if you want a little more detail than we provide here on the podcast. Once again, before I let you go, go to OIS.net, vote for the OISX Gala finalist, and of course, register to attend OIS at AAO, which is happening on October 25th in Chicago. The OISX Gala is happening the night before on the 24th. Please register right away. Now let's hear from Jay Cormier, the CEO of Idaptic. Well, Jay Cormier, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I had the pleasure of meeting you at uh, OIS Retina, and uh, saw you uh, gave a great presentation there of uh, of your technology and uh, adaptive stories. So I wanted to follow up on that and uh, share it with our podcast listeners now. So uh, I like to start these things off just uh, learning a little bit about our guests. I will I will spill the beans right up front. You're not an ophthalmologist nor an optometrist. <laughs> You're not an eye care professional. But uh, I was kind of wondering how you found your way, if you could share your background and tell us how you found your way into uh, ophthalmology. Sure, I'd be happy to, Tom. I, my background's more of a technology background, uh, both in hardware and software. And the kind of germination of Idaptic and the idea was uh, a different company. We were playing around with augmented reality in a completely different market space. And um, kind of at the same time, my grandmother and great-grandmother had AMD. And I just saw them, you know, that robbed them of their quality of life. Very sharp, living on their own. But it was really the AMD that kind of got them in the end, I would say. And so as we were working on this augmented reality, we kind of, you know, some of us were talking and started to put two and two together and said, you know, gee, I wonder if this could be helpful for people like that, given that with AMD, you always retain your peripheral vision. Could we somehow optimize or maximize that? Uh, and so we started playing around with that. Uh, first, we thought we might have to do our own hardware, but very soon we saw the power of some of these new augmented reality glasses coming to market. And we said, well, that's just fantastic. I think we can really leverage that 
with a business model that's basically a software um, model enabled by the hardware. Um, so we kind of set out on that a couple of years ago. Uh, and one of the things that worked really well that I had mentioned at uh, OIS was bringing in uh, a couple of retinal specialists that uh, initially I thought were advisors, but really became co-founders. And uh, between Dr. Meta and Dr. Tim, they had a very strong technology background in engineering and software, but also were retinal specialists. And together with our CTO, they were able to, um, you know, get some of their patients, which would be our users, in front of our CTO's prototypes. And we quickly saw the power of this solution and got traction. And quite frankly, iterated like many software models to really improve very rapidly on what we could do to help these people. So give me a primer, if you will, on uh, augmented reality. What are we talking about and, and how does that compare to virtual reality, which we hear uh, of just as much, if not more? That's a, that's a great question. And it's one of the things that we feel pretty strongly about because in the end, uh, we probably, like you said, heard more about virtual reality because it came earlier. Uh, but the the challenge with virtual reality, especially in this application, is virtual reality by its nature is meant to be immersive. And so although the immersion is very interesting for applications like video games, that same immersive nature, what we found, uh, really cuts the people off from their outside environment. And that's not a good thing. Okay, so augmented reality, and of course, I will preface this by saying um, there's many definitions of augmented reality, but the common one is one where the um, what's displayed in front of the user's eyes is overlaid on the real world. And what we do is really more of a hybrid of that, maybe call it a mixed reality, where we integrate what they see through the displays with the real world. So they're not cut off like virtual reality, but also can focus on the image that we're giving them to help their vision. So are you, in essence, filling in those blanks that, uh, that have been brought on by AMD? Well, that, that's certainly one way to think about it is, um, of course, there's two problems. Obviously, with someone with AMD, they have a central scotoma, so they lose their central vision. One of the things we do is basically warp or move the pixels out from the center where they can't see to the periphery where they can see. So that, in some sense, is filling in the blanks. But the other thing that we do, and of course the problem now with most of all the solutions out there is it's pure magnification. And as you magnify, uh, you also lose or collapse that field of vision. So by helping them some with magnification, you also rob them of much of the context they need to function well. And so that's what we also solve by as you know, maybe we magnify and move those pixels. We also are maintaining that full field of vision so they don't lose their context and can stay hooked into the real world. And the, the technology you're using, the uh, AR technology, is it something that you've designed yourself or is this kind of a, I don't know if off the shelf applies, but is, is it a common uh, AR technology? Yeah, so I would say we are using uh, other AR technology. We don't design it ourselves, but... Um, so let's call it common or industry standard, but not just any augmented reality technology will work because there are many that have a very limited field of vision in the display. 
And of course, you need enough field of vision to cover the person's peripheral vision, right? So something like less than 20 to 25 degrees of field of vision doesn't really work. We feel we need at least 30, 50 is even better. And that's, and we've seen the power of that with the users because now that display is also covering their peripheral vision so we can optimize that better. And you had mentioned in your presentation, and, and the product is called AdaptiveView, and we can uh, get into more of what it looks like, but I think you mentioned in your presentation that the origins of this approach uh, actually have some, some connections to, to NASA. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It's very, um, it's very interesting that although a number of people um, are working on this, but really just the magnification side, um, some of the origins of this went back 20 years to when NASA was working with, you know, it's a space program because um, astronauts would have problems with vision going to space. So there was a lot of research being done then on vision. And so some of the basic thoughts around this were back in the late 80s. What wasn't there then was, first of all, the augmented reality um, glasses to really or the compute platforms that made this happen. So I think that's one thing that's much different than when this was originally conceived. And the other thing that we found is there's a high amount of adaptation from these users uh, because they've gotten used to using their peripheral vision differently than most everyone else. And really, a lot of our secret sauce is around those adaptive systems to make this work. And that's much different and much more evolved than what was thought about 20 years ago. So let's talk a bit about AdaptiveView. You can see uh, anyone can visit uh, iadaptic.com, that's E-Y-E-D-A-P-T-I-C.com to uh, see a picture of the, uh, of the AdaptiveView eyewear. Uh, it looks like a, a, a pair of uh, sunglasses with obviously some depth for some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, electronics in there. But tell us what it is and, and, and exactly what it does and how. So, so fundamentally, from the hardware side, it's really a mobile phone platform integrated into a pair of glasses with displays that sit in front of your eyes. What we do is the software that gets embedded in that. So that software is able to take in the images from the real world through the front-mounted cameras, reprocess those images, uh, both adapting to the person's particular affliction but also adapting to their environment as well as their habits, redisplaying those images in front of their eyes on the displays to take advantage of the useful vision. So it's really that bundled solution that makes this work for the user. And where is this device uh, in testing? You, you mentioned some clinical trials that are ongoing. Uh, how much testing has this gone through and, and how much testing are you facing in the future? Yeah, great, great question. And certainly some of that we did present at OIS. Uh, our original preclinical data was presented at ARVO a few months ago. Um, the preclinical data was basically measuring reading speed for people that are anywhere from 2070 to 2200. Um, and we've seen an improvement in reading speed of on average of 50%. Uh, we've seen roughly 26 users so far some of those in our informal user meetings, some of those in our more formal clinical trials. And our formal clinical trial um, presentation data will happen at Envision in the next few weeks. So we've tested this across a fairly broad user base so far with a variety of different scotoma patterns even 
uh, with AMD, but we have focused on AMD, although this theoretically can be used for other retinal conditions. Um, and again, we've seen not only the reading improve, but also uh, everyday tasks, because again, they have that context. So for instance, even, you know, screwing in a screw with a screwdriver or playing cards or writing a check. Um, and also because this is augmented reality, our goal is not to inhibit mobility. So what we have our users do is wear these, walk down the hall, read signs, the whole point is to really have these integrated into their daily. Life. And how are you interacting with the uh, ophthalmology community? And I know you've got a couple of uh, uh, ophthalmologists as, as co-founders, but going forward uh, with clinical trials, with testing, and ultimately with uh, with a commercial release, how do you see this being used and how do you see patients accessing uh, the uh, adaptive view? Great, great question. And I should probably preface that, Tom, by saying this is an FDA class one exempt device. So although we do focus on getting good clinical data, that's not FDA required because this is not a therapy or diagnostic. But I think it's very important for both the medical community and also for the general community to see the power of this solution. Um, so we have spent quite a bit of time with the ophthalmologist because most all of these AMD patients do go through an ophthalmologist somehow. But ultimately, when these patients or their patients get diagnosed, they get referred to some sort of low vision optometrist, okay, or low vision specialist. And these are the people that are most likely to work with that person and their affliction to try to optimize their remaining vision. And these are the type of people that would either be recommending this, maybe even, you know, bringing this to those customers or those users to help them better. And also perhaps even providing some of the training that goes along with that. So I think the ophthalmologists are very key in the referral channel, um, but the low vision optometrists are also very key in making sure they get this solution into the user's hands. So will this be a, a private pay device? So great question. Um, this is a direct pay and the analogy that really is very close to this is the hearing aid model. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so hearing aids are direct pay. So is this. This falls under eyeglasses, so it's not a reimbursable, um, just like a hearing aid. So what we've chosen to do is price it right on top of the hearing aid model because we know that model works, and that's a very large worldwide market. Um, so we're trying to basically just use that as a template uh, with the same type of price points, um, with the same type of service in terms of the low vision specialist instead of an audiologist would be servicing that user. Uh, but we know that that direct pay model works. And so that's uh, what we're trying to replicate. Can you speak with confidence if you don't need FDA approval, you'll have this on the, on the market uh, at some point? And if so, when, when do you see that happening? Sure. So first of all, I would say we are planning a couple different models. One for the, you know, badly afflicted later stage AMD patients, but also, also something for the maybe more entry level where people are just starting to have problems. It's starting to bother them. And if we get to them sooner with something that they can grow with that, and then it will be even more impactful as their eyesight deteriorates. So we do have a couple of different models planned and how we bring those to market are not going to be the same. But our first model, we plan on going to some sort of beta launch the beginning of next year. 
and then kind of mid-year after we're making sure everything's working from the channel standpoint as well as the technical standpoint and support standpoint, then we'll go to a U.S. launch and then follow that up with our entry-level model maybe six months after that. All right. And finally, what have the, uh, the challenges been running this company? Tell us a bit about uh, how you how you assembled the, the startup and, and what you've done for uh, for financing up until this point. I know you recently received some capital from a, an angels group. Right. So um, that, that's a great question. First of all, I would say I'm very fortunate with the team we have. Uh, the team has worked out great, not only because of, like I said, that ophthalmology background, but also the technology background, being able to bridge that, uh, as well as low vision specialists that are part of this. So the team is really what's making this happen. Um, the challenge has been more on the how you get this to market that's making sure that it's impactful. Because I think for these low vision users, or the people that are afflicted with AMD, they're very frustrated. There's a huge pent-up demand for something to help them. And everything out there up till now has been disappointing and just not solving the problem. So I think for us, what we find a challenge is just kind of making sure we keep that balance. Is rushing to market with something that's not impactful doesn't really help them, and many people have seen that. And that's why we're being, you know, with other devices. And that's why we're being very careful on the clinical side to make sure we've got this all locked down. Um, so that's certainly been the biggest challenge is just like anything, it, it's keeping that balance. But because this is software, we're able to iterate quickly and see what works with the users. And that's been great. Um, from a funding standpoint, we've been, again, very fortunate is not only to have some angel groups, but to have a large um, support network of retinal specialists who know how hard this is for their patients, who know that they don't have anything for 90% of their patients and really want to see and bring something to the market that will help them. So we're fortunate to have raised money, a lot of that with not only friends and family, but also retinal specialists that are very supportive of the cause. Oh, that's interesting. Well, so you you mentioned that you presented at Arvo. You obviously were at uh, OIS Retina. Uh, and I know you were ASRS was happening at the time. Are you also interacting with the uh, with the optometrist? Are you going to SECO and some of the other meetings as well, and uh, connecting with them there, or are you really trying to build a base of support from the retinal specialists first? Well, we're certainly trying to build that base of support from the retinal specialists. So that's let's call that the first step. The second step, what we're doing is building that base of support with the low vision optometrists. And that's why we're presenting our clinical data at Envision the next few weeks. Um, so that is where, you know, that's kind of that first wave of people that will really be supporting these patients with AMD. Um, and then what we're doing from there and starting to plant the seeds now is building a broader base with the optometrists because that, I think, will be targeted for our next product, which is that more entry-level model. And that could be sold through the general optometry channels, I think, much more successfully. So we do have kind of a three-wave type of progression here. Uh, I think the for the late-stage people, they'll always need some help from those low-vision optometrists, which is a pretty uh, focused community. But then for earlier-stage people, um, then I think we can go through the general optometry channels more successfully afterwards. Excellent. 
Well, uh, thank you for uh, sharing your story at OAS Retina, and thanks for uh, retelling it for us today on the podcast. Well, I really appreciate the time, Tom, and it was great talking to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us, OIS Podcast listeners. As always, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way it finds you even faster. You could also tell your friends about the podcast and let them know to subscribe to the podcast. And they can tell you when it's updated and you can listen or you can subscribe and tell your friends. There's so many options. But please uh, just spread the word. We love uh, having more people listening to the OIS Podcast. Numbers look great, but uh, let's make them even better. Finally, don't forget to register for OIS and AAO. It's happening on October 25th. In Chicago, go to ois.net, register to attend OIS at AAO. And please do not hesitate. If you have not already voted for the OISX Gala finalists, you need to do it right now. The deadline is October 3rd. That's Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time. So do not delay. Go to ois.net, cast your vote, and of course, register to attend OIS at AAO. And we will see you in Chicago.